Welcome to Chapter Chat Online Book Club. I'm Carrie. And I'm Michael. We are speech language pathologists who are passionate about developmentally appropriate practice. Each week, we discuss one chapter from a book related to optimal child development and education reform. Thanks for joining us. And enjoy the show. Hi, welcome to another episode of Chapter Chat. I am Carrie, and I am here with my good friend, Mike. How's it going? Very good, very good. We are back uh, to chat about chapter four of our current read, which is Let the Children Play, How More Play Will Save Our Schools and Help Children Thrive. So what'd you think about chapter four, Mike? Chapter four was awesome. Chapter four is really, uh, I, I feel like, Obviously, this book is rather, uh, it's rather new. Uh, I know they mentioned uh, the previous president, Donald Trump, in this chapter. Yeah, so I saw all, that. So, so it has to be fairly new. Yeah. Uh, so, uh, but, but overall, uh, I really feel like this chapter is really hitting on what we're seeing now. Yeah. Uh, all on social media, on Facebook, on Instagram, I'm seeing constant uh, articles being shared about the mental health crisis Absolutely. That's really dealing with children and teens and school-age children today. Yep. And this chapter hits on that perfectly. It really does. So this chapter is called The Germ That Kills Play. And GERM is an acronym. So it's it's capitalized. And so uh, GERM, in case you haven't um, been following along, maybe this is your first time listening, GERM stands for Global Education Reform Movement. And it has actually led to what they talk about in this chapter, and it's pretty powerful. It's led to the war on play. What do you think of that? Isn't that powerful, the way they describe that? That's exactly what it is. In, in our very, very <laughs> first book of Chapter Chat, in Chapter Chat history, uh -huh. we, we learned about the cognitive hypothesis yep. about how uh, it, society needs to push academics, and it's all about increasing IQ, and that's the most important thing we can do for youth. And germ is really the global push of the cognitive hypothesis. Yes. So pushing academics, pushing testing, and this germ global movement, which is which has to be, you know, the biggest in America because America uh -huh. is so low in terms of education ranking in the world. Right. Uh, and that's exactly what it is. And I mentioned before this mental health crisis affecting children and teens and everyone asking why is it screens? Is it phones? Is it social media? Is it whatever? It, it, the number one thing that makes the most sense is the disappearance of play. Absolutely. And uh, in chapter, well, I don't know, it was one of the, is either chapter one or two, they talked about, the authors talked about how if you don't like saying the word play, because so many times people refer to play or think about play as being uh, only appropriate or indicated in early childhood, you know, and you work with adolescents and, and high schoolers and college age uh, um, kids. So uh, I like how on page 19 in this book, they said in lieu of using the taboo word play, because so many people have a problem with that. They talk about calling it SEED, which is another acronym. And SEED stands for Systematic Exploration, Experimentation, and Discovery. And that's what's really disappearing is play in all ages, not just referring to early childhood, but that lack of systematic exploration, experimentation, and discovery uh, for all of our students of all ages. <clears throat> that's, exact, that's exactly what it is. Uh, and and, uh, and it, within this chapter, uh, right here on page 96, it, it really opens up about this mental health crisis. Mm -hmm. So play is being replaced by incorrect, <laughs> counterproductive education practices that can lead to excessive stress, 
we're seeing that. Yep. Disengagement from school, we're seeing that. I was actually just talking to a, a, some parents recently and some uh, and some teachers and some school professionals recently. They're seeing more flat out school refusal Ooh. now more than ever where these kids are waking up and they're just flat out refusing to go to school. So there's Isn't uh, that something? Yeah. Yeah, so there's disengagement from school, fear of failure, lack of motivation to learn, and declining well-being and life satisfaction for millions of children around the world. Right, and on that same page, Mike, in the next paragraph, it ends with schools are being turned into stress factories. There you go. I mean, I, I just, you know, so yes, we have, uh, I think it's, it, you know, mental health is just one of those things that thank goodness we're now talking about it, right? We've always uh, uh, been proactive about physical health. And finally, now, you know, we are talking about mental health, but now we have to do more than just talk about it, right? We need yep. to, to take action and uh, we need to make sure that uh, schools are, are not stress factories. And and it's unbelievable. I, I got to see what page it is somewhere um, in this chapter, though, they were describing it was, I think it was a parent describing her child's first day of kindergarten. Okay. It's on page 114. One Florida mother was recently stunned to learn that her daughter's first day of kindergarten, her introduction to elementary school, which should be a day of joy and wonder for a child was devoted almost exclusively to testing. Five different strangers asked the girl to perform tasks to be evaluated. By the time I picked her up, the mother reported, she did not want to talk about what she had done in school, but she did say that she did not want to go back. She did wow. not know the teacher's names. She did not make any friends. Later that afternoon, as she played with her animals in her room, I overheard her drilling them on their numbers and letters. Unbelievable. Unbelievable. <laughs> I, and I just... and, and uh, us as SLPs, and therapists and educators, you mm -hmm. know, we hear so much about this phrase, what's age appropriate. Uh -huh. And one thing, one thing I loved on, on page 96, the first sentence of the paragraph is it uses this new phrase that you don't hear enough age inappropriate. And oh. that really, that really rung a bell to me was, okay, I, I, I always hear about age appropriate, mm -hmm. but how about age inappropriate? Yeah. So dis discovery and dialogue for children is being replaced with age inappropriate instruction. And that to me, that really, really rung a bell inside my head yeah. and was like, okay, that's it. That's, that's it. it. It's age inappropriate instruction. And you know, the term that I use in my, uh, uh, play course that I do is I've always referred to it as grade inflation. So how we're doing the yeah. second grade curriculum in kindergarten, the first grade curriculum in the four-year-old pre-K classroom, the traditional kindergarten curriculum with three-year-olds. And so I really appreciate though, having another term, it's age inappropriate. It's hard to say age inappropriate yeah. instruction or grade inflation, right? This whole idea that we are um, denying children the um, evidence-based developmentally appropriate way to learn, which is through play, through discovery and exploration uh, and replacing it with, um, I also, this is a power, page 96. Like if you only read one page from this whole chapter, oh, yeah. I've got so much underlined, but I love how they say, they talk about prepackaged scripts. That's what school has become. Education teaching has become um, prepackaged scripts uh, for our children. Uh, and so, um, you know, they do a lot in this chapter about defending play. I always say I'm a defender oh, yeah. of play. And that's what I am, I guess, um, Mike and I both are imploring all of the listeners uh, to and parents and uh, educators and SLPs to become as defenders of play. You have to understand the research behind why play matters, um, because we know that play is disappearing 
disappearing, right? Play is disappearing from our homes, from our neighborhoods, from our childcare centers, and it's all but disappeared from our schools. Uh, and so it's this idea that, um, oh, I wrote down this one thing that, that really, when we think about the institution of school, you know, it has really become, um, education in general has become this narrowly focused um, uh, kind of prison that only looks at academics, doesn't really yep. consider the whole child, right? We're not looking at um, the five developmental domains. So as an early intervention provider, we look at cognitive and that's where the cognitive hypothesis, you know, we're all in, right? Everything is about cognitive. Oh, we got to make them smarter, faster, baby Einstein, brainy baby educational videos, your baby can read program. The cognitive hypothesis started in the late nineties with this idea that if we could just make babies smarter, faster, they would somehow be better off as adults. Right. So the cognitive hypothesis. So, yes, one domain of development is cognitive. And I feel like that's all we focus on. We hyper focus on that. But we also have communication. We have social, emotional. OK, we mm -hmm. have physical, which includes gross motor, fine motor. It includes sensory. It includes, can, you know, hearing, sight. I mean, anything related to bodily functions. Right. Is physical. And then we have self-help, which is where independence, you know, comes from. So I just think that when you look at the five domains of development, one of the biggest issues um, we, we have that we aren't talking about enough is we are not looking at the whole child. We are hyper focused uh, that narrowly focused uh, on cognitive. And it all stems from the cognitive hypothesis that says the most important thing for your child to be is smart. That's what the cognitive hypothesis is. And earlier is always better, right? Absolutely. And, and what really fires me up as uh, a therapist and an educator is all, so much of this is founded upon, and we talk about this, is corruption. And this germ <laughs> is the corruption. And it's, yep. these and it's these big businesses and big money getting involved in education so that we can push academics. Why? Because academics are measurable. Right. And that's the most important thing is we can, you can put a grade to science, social studies, math, English, you can measure these things, you can measure reading, you can measure mm -hmm. these things. And the more that these things can be measured, the more we can do data. So we're taking all of these students and we're, we're giving them labels, we're giving them numbers, we're giving them standard deviations. Right. We learned in one of our chapter chat books about this Remember the character report card? Oh, Remember that? yes. Remember, yeah, that we sort of thing. We said we'd change it to the executive function report card. The, Remember the, that? Yeah, exactly. We were, yes, we were like, oh, because everybody wants to call those, what do they call them, like soft skills, right? Isn't yeah. that what they like to call them in education? Yeah. And the reason they're called soft skills is because it's hard to measure executive function skills. But when you really want to talk about what's the purpose of education, yes, there are some foundational academic skills. Mike and I are not suggesting we don't need to teach kids to read and write. You know, of that's course. not what we're saying. There's absolutely a place for academics, but what about the, and you know, those other skills, those uh, life skills, the ability to have success outside of school, right? That's the, really- The independent skills. That's really mm -hmm. what it is. And, and we talk about this all the time uh, based on American education. You really do need a college degree these days. The vast majority mm -hmm. of people do need a college degree. Yes, you can be successful without it, but most people do need to go on to go on to college. And mm -hmm. that is most parents' dreams for their kids. Mm -hmm. And we talk about this all the time is we now lead the world in college dropouts. Here in the United and, States. And, absolutely. And, and there's yep. a high percentage of those kids that are honor roll, uh, that are in AP classes, honors classes in high school doing right. very, very well, but they're doing well on the academic piece and they're asked to be independent and they, they go on to they college that they can't manage their screen time. They right. can't make friends. They can't meet their professor during office hours. They can't utilize the writing resource center and they fall right. apart. 
Right. So being smart, which they clearly proved they were smart in high school, right? Because they, they got good grades. They scored really well on the ACT or the SAT. So they are by definition smart, but just being smart isn't enough. You have Correct. to have um, that smartness, if you will, paired with executive function skills to be able to be successful uh, on your own, right? When you don't have a teacher there standing over you, taking attendance, a parent standing over you, making sure you do your homework, all of those things. So on page um, 96, gosh, we're still on page 96, but <laughs> it's amazing to me, um, the very last sentence in yes. that, on that page, yes. it says, I think the biggest problem is that schools prioritize the kind of academic learning that requires students to sit at desks and not move their bodies. I mean, I underline yeah. that like five yeah. times. Yeah. That's exactly it. That's exactly yeah. it. So we talk about executive function skills being the most important skills to develop in adolescence. Well, guess what? Those are those are skills that cannot be developed sitting down at a desk. No, they can't. Period. No, they can't. And one of my favorite books is an early intervention provider. And I've I'm sure I've mentioned this in multiple episodes, but it's called A Moving Child. Oh, I have it right here, Mike. A Moving Child is a Learning Child. And this is just such a oh, powerful yeah. book because it explains how the body teaches the brain to think. Uh, and 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 again, I, I know I've said it before, but I'm going to say it again because I know we have new listeners on every episode. Um, an occupational therapist once explained, and these are such powerful words, that the highest form of movement is the ability to sit still. Okay, so here we are expecting three, four, five, six, seven, eight-year-old kids to sit still, and yet that's the highest form of movement. The only way um, they're going to develop the ability to sit still is if we allow them to get out of their chairs first, right? They have to be able to move and learn simultaneously, not sit still and learn and then go move and goof off. I mean, so the other great thing on page 90, uh, the next page, 97 it says, the last paragraph, many schools have become outright hostile to play and a false dichotomy has defined childhood play. And they use the word work. I would use the word learning. They have defined childhood play and learning as two separate things. It's so important mm -hmm. that we don't try to um, separate um, a, a learning and play as though they are on opposite ends of a continuum. Because what a lot of adults and clearly a lot of people in charge of education think is that learning is serious work, right? Learning is serious business. Kids should be sitting still. They should be quiet. Uh, and the teacher should be doing all the talking, right? That's yep. what learning looks like. So they should, a, a principal or an administrator thinks they should be able to walk into a classroom and they'll know learning yep. is happening because everybody's sitting still being quiet. It should quiet. look like an American office. It should look like in a cubicle, right? That's cubicle. what it should look like. American yep. office. Absolutely, Mike. What a great analogy. Um, where, and then they think, oh, but when the kids are out at recess or when they're, if they're in early childhood, when they're playing Legos, you know, during center time, or when there, um, you know, doing arts and crafts. That's not learning. That's just play as though play was the opposite of learning. And you guys play and learning are synonyms. And yep. that's what, to me, the whole point of, of this book is, is that yep. they're synonyms. They're not opposites. They're not opposite oh, yeah. ends of a continuum. So we have to stop with this binary, you know, definition that learning is work and play is a waste of time. It's frivolous, purposeless activity. That is not what the research shows. Yeah, this book could literally be called Let the Children Learn because yeah. because the, <laughs> the, the system that we have in place is that we're not we don't have a, a, an environment that fosters learning. Right. We have, an, we have an environment that fosters anxiety, anxiety, think, stress, right? Stress. Think about that. Think about that story we opened up with of, of the girl that 
she went through her day at kindergarten and first then day. And yep. first day and then didn't want to answer any questions didn't uh-huh. want to go back just what w- the the day was over and she was done talking about it if she was able to play if she was able to build relationships and right. make friends and talk to people she would have came out of there beaming oh, and she and, and she would say I, I don't want to leave I want to come right. back I want to come back right and I, that's what we need Absolutely. I, I, I was thinking back to a very similar story. There was an occupational therapist in one of my courses many years ago. And she said she, her daughter went to kindergarten the first day and, you know, she picked her up from school and she's like, how was it? And she said to her daughter was a little gloomy. She's like, I guess it was okay. And then the next morning she gets her up and says, we need to get ready for school. And her daughter started crying. And she said, why are you crying? She said, I'm, I'm done with school. I already went. Like she was freaking out. Like it was fine for one day, but she had no idea she was expected to go back every day for the rest of her, her childhood. So she was devastated when her mom said, no, you have to go every day. And she lost it because she was that unhappy. Um, so yeah, it's, it's a real problem. Hey, Mike, remember that book? Um, one of the books we, uh, did is the, uh, for the book study by Linda Murphy. And I can't remember which book it was. I think it was the co-regulation handbook. And she had this great quote in there and it's just three words, but it's one of my favorite quotes now, stress impedes learning. There you go. Stress impedes learning. So how can we have stress factories called schools and then claim that kids are there to learn when we know, and, and, you know, I'm getting ready to do um, a new a new um, professional development course on addressing challenging behavior in young children using compassion and co-regulation. Uh, and, and we have to wonder, why are we seeing so many more challenging behaviors in all ages of students, right? All the way from early childhood through high school, because kids are overstressed, they're overwhelmed, right? Uh, they're, they're in these stress factories where their basic needs are not being met. Um, it's a huge issue. Yeah, and you can really highlight the two things in this chapter. Number one, age inappropriate instruction. Okay. And number two, being asked to sit at desks and not move their bodies. Right. Those two things together are a recipe for disaster. I, and you I, yep. think and you think about the young childhood brain from zero to five years old. Uh-huh. That, that brain can't handle that kind of stress nope. and anxiety. Nope. All the cortisol that's being released. Fight or flight. That's fight or flight. That's what happens. We're not dealing with an 18, 19, 20, 25 year old that has coping skills and can self-regulate and can talk (laughs) to their brain and do these things. Right. We're talking about babies here. They can't deal with this. They can't be waking up in the morning and saying, I don't want to go to school. I've already been there. Uh That that place makes me nervous and scared. That's, that's, That's terrible. This is, we're talking about like a juvenile hall kind of thing here. Exactly. Isn't that the truth? Um, on page uh, 99, Mike, it, I only have a couple things highlighted on this page, but um, down at the bottom, um, they are talking about um, the uh, age inappropriateness, if you will, of oh, yeah. uh, early childhood programs, kindergartens, elementary school. And they say their days are chopped up into arbit- arbitrary curriculum segments with days um, that involve six to 10 transitions and leave little room for children to explore, invent, and interact. I want you to think for a minute about just in general, how hard it is for young children with developing brains and bodies to transition, right? It's always hard because it seems like what I observe when I go into early childhood classrooms is it seems like just when kids are finally getting going with creating, with imagining, with, you know, whatever it is they're doing, whether they're creating with Play-Doh or whether they're, you know, drawing or coloring or building with blocks, it seems like just when they finally get going, it's time to transition to sales. Okay, guys, time to be done. Everybody needs to clean up. So now you're asking them not only to stop this thing that they're finally mentally engaged and engrossed in, now you're going to ask them to transition and clean up this thing that they are so passionate about. And we wonder why there's behaviors. We wonder why kids are are upset and stressed out. Can you imagine having six to 10 transitions um, at the age of three, four, five, six, seven years old? 
Unbelievable. Yeah. And and I, I I love the saying they use on 99, play deprivation. Oh, so yeah. Play deprivation <clears throat> may lead directly to children disconnecting from school, especially poor children. And that brings me back to page 97. When I sit in classrooms in America, I see children deprived of exercise, play, who mm -hmm. have to be yelled at, bribed, threatened, or drugged to make them focus in class and complete their <laughs> academic work. So, 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 of course, as an ADHD executive function specialist, I'm a big fan of the medication out there. Right. But be because school is so structured now for these young kids and they're having these six to 10 transitions and we're making kindergarten look like eighth grade for goodness sake. We're over-diagnosing ADHD, over-diagnosing EFDD, and we're drugging these kids when they're so young and it's affecting their personality, their appetite, their sleep, and adding to the stress of school. So, and, and I see this all the time. I can't tell you how many schools I go into where the teachers are so burnt out. Yep. They're not even able to teach because number one, the teachers are under so much pressure to teach to the test, use the common core and teach to the standardized testing. But the kids don't want to sit still. They're sick and tired of school and the way it's structured around them. And they're only five or six. Yeah. Or six. I mean, this is the thing is this is, it's not like this is a problem of high schoolers, right? This is starting now in early childhood. And um, the, the three worst words you ever want to hear a student utter is I hate school. And we have five-year-olds actually uttering those words. Okay. So something has got Most to change. Of them. Yeah, yeah, this is this is not okay. And on page uh, 98, it says, uh, unfortunately, then we spend an inordinate amount of time attempting to discipline and manage bodies, which is a losing proposition, right? So behavior management is probably one of the primary things that teachers feel like they have to do. So how much time can be spent actually teaching when they're spending so much time managing behavior, managing children, right? Yep. And on the top of page 101, they, uh, they do a nice job here of listing yes. all the different things that are really happening. So number one, pitting schools against each other in a Darwinian race for higher standardized test scores. Yep. So that is a major problem with politics getting involved in education. Yep. So first we had no child left behind. Then we had race to the top, both on both sides of the aisle, Democrat, yep. Republican, right wing, left wing, yep. both massive, massive failures because of the absolute push for standardized testing. And schools are now pitted against each other to see who performs best. Right. What, what schools have the higher test scores, which to, for, to them means which schools have the best teachers, right. the best communities, and who deserves the, the more taxpayer funds. And then what do we do? We get it. We, we, we actually publish who are the blue ribbon schools, right? So then we know that in the inner city, those aren't going to be your blue ribbon schools, right? No so shot. then, and, and in this chapter, and I don't know that we'll get to it, but that then, Mike, that whole issue then leads to this idea of, oh, well, we'll just have school choice, right? We'll just have these vouchers. We'll do all of this. Whereas what do they do in Finland? Oh, no, no. In Finland, they say, no, we're going to have equity. All of our schools are going to be just as good. Every neighborhood school is just as good as the other ones so that parents don't have to move in an attempt to get their child to go to a good school. Right? Exactly. And all of these schools being pitted against each other, what else does that bring about? It brings about more lawsuits, more oh, educational yeah. lawsuits, more due process, yep. more challenging everything. Sure. Oh, my son doesn't go to a blue ribbon school. Right. My son has this teacher. My son has this programming. We need to sue the school and get them this programming. It's a, it's a, it's a, and, yeah. and the schools end up spending all of their funding on lawyers and 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 and, and uh, law cases and all these issues. It's 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 a it's a, a vicious cycle that has no. Progress. It really is. It really uh, is. So yes. Yeah, so the, the the standardized test, the pitting schools against each other. What are the other components of germ? 
one size fits all teaching. So that's the that's the common core, common of core. Yep. The, which is ridiculous. Universal mm-hmm. standardized testing of children. So p- constantly pushing standardized testing, uh, whether it's national testing or state testing or sure. county testing, constant, constant testing, which no kid wants to do. Right. Punishing schools and teachers based on testing data which makes no sense. Finland doesn't do that whatsoever. They work with the teachers because teachers are actually respected there. Forcing young children to prematurely observe academic material at the expense of other critical subjects like art, physical activity. So there you go. That's your age inappropriate testing. And Mike, I just have to say on page 121, you talked about all the testing that kids have to do, whether it's, you know, state level, federal level. On page 121, they say the average student in an American urban school district takes an average of 112 standardized tests from kindergarten to graduation. 112 Are you hearing me, you guys? 112 standardized tests. That's insane. I can't even. That's an average of what? 10 a year. 10 standardized tests. And that was 2015. I guarantee that's gone up. I can't even handle it. That is is so bad. That is is so bad. It really is. There is a saying that American students are the most tested and the least examined of any in the world. We test students in the U.S. far more than any other nation in the mistaken belief that testing produced greater learning. Yep, yep, yep. Um, well, and we see this. It, it's just, it. I don't know. We could go on and on about it. I have so many thoughts on that. But yeah, so germ is one of our biggest issues. Um, and what is interesting, ooh, I had it here. I have to show you, though, that the countries that, let me find. Um, okay, so here we have it on page 108. It says, uh, Um, In the countries, okay, in fact, a wide range of evidence shows that germ has not been successful in improving student learning or well-being anywhere. It has been uh, a dominant education uh, uh, policy framework. So instead, cooperation, creativity, professionalism, trust, and equity are the education policy priorities that underpin successful education systems like those in Singapore, Canada, and Finland. There you go. Right. So that's the opposite of germ. Like if you, we, cause really, um, as they go throughout, I, and I have them highlighted starting on page one Oh five, that there's like these five primary features of germ and Mike just kind of went over them. So the five features and then what on page one Oh eight, they summarize. So this is basically the opposite of germ. This is what the countries who get it, who are doing well in education, what they focus on. Uh, so, and, and isn't it something Mike on page one Oh seven, it says the fifth trend of germ is market-based privatization of public education. And that's what you were talking about, how, um, you know, we have these uh, accountability mechanisms, these big testing companies, curriculum companies who are making bank off of American education, right? Of being able to tap into that commercialization of education. That's exactly what's happening. And they did a great job really listing uh, all these features of germs, you know, Mm -hmm. number one being the competition, number two, standardized testing, number three, the deprofessionalization of teachers, uh, and then uh, the fourth is large-scale, high-stakes standardized testing yep. and this market-based privatization. Uh, and we move on to page 123 here. They start to get into more details about standardized tests. Oh, and, yes. And, and we have pushed standardized testing so much in this country that parents now push for it and are convinced <laughs> that it's a benefit, that we need to test kids more. I need to know my right. son's 
standard deviations in reading. Right. Their scores and yet, in reading. on page 122, it says standardized tests do not measure most of the skills and future skills most valued by employers in society, like critical thinking, teamwork, empathy, compassion, confidence, leadership, and communication, presentation skills, tolerance of ambiguity, and global citizenship. So the standardization and over-testing in schools is really one of our biggest issues. And it's one of the biggest components of this germ that they are talking about in this chapter. Yeah. And all the research shows that these standardized tests don't really measure how much a student learns or how well teachers teach or how effective school leaders lead their schools. Right. So, and such tests are blunt instruments that are highly susceptible to measuring out of school factors. Uh, so these these standardized testings really aren't accurate. We know all the time from all the tests we use, from diagnostics right. to speech and language, sure. how, how these tests can be biased or, or whatever it may be. Sure. These standardized tests aren't giving us the information that we really think they are. And the problem is, right. is now a lot of these standardized tests are being given on computers and screens. Not, yeah. now, or not now are they Scantrons and, and you have to read it with paper. They're right. all done on computers now yeah. where kids are rushing through them not even reading the question, just right. putting an just answer Just filling down. in a bubble. Yeah, It's an absolute yep. mess. Um, on page 126, they talk about, you know, we've even standardized PE, right? Standardized. So they talk about the 166-page PE um, evaluation instrument that holds these PE teachers accountable for ensuring that students meet state-defined targets for physical education. Listen to a couple of these skills that um, they have to have correct skipping technique with a smooth and effortless, effortless rhythm and striking consistently a ball with a paddle to a target area with accuracy and good technique. Those are the standardized testing skills that students have to have. Okay. So, I mean, it's just, it's, it's, it's unbelievable how this standardized testing has just invaded every aspect of, of our schools and of our, of education. I literally had to read that part twice. <laughs> that is so pathetic. Like that, yep. like that's, yep. that's, that blows my mind. Yeah. Like yeah. how did adults sit in a room yep. and come up with that? 166 pages of these isolated skills that need to be checked off a checklist before we can say you can pass PE. Correct skipping technique. Yep. With a smooth and effortless, effortless rhythm. rhythm. <laughs> that like it, it, who is in charge of this stuff? But, but why? I mean, I'm just, I, I see again, I always look at, because I'm a speech therapist, I always look at function. What's the function behind the goal? Do you know what I mean? If we're going to teach something, there should be a, a, a functional reason behind it. I mean, if the child struggles with motor planning skills, then we can write a goal to improve, you know, motor planning. But I, I don't know. It's just fascinating. On that same page, Mike, on page 126, down in the last paragraph, it says, most scholars agree that learning is an active process. Would you agree with that statement? <laughs> is an active process where the learner, i.e. the child, has the key role, not the teacher. Whew. That's pretty fascinating, right? That means children have an active role in what they learn and how they learn. Uh, and, and so really the role of the teacher um, should be able to meet individual needs, right? And to be able to um, differentiate learning because we know not every student learns at the same rate, learns the same way. Uh, but yet, um, I, I don't know, With when you think about this whole idea of common core, it's this idea that we have scripted classrooms, scripted curriculums that teachers don't need to differentiate anything uh, for our students. Yep. And, and this chapter really closes out beautifully on page 127. 
Uh, one study published in the Archives of Pediatrics and Adolescence Medicine, children's free play dropped by a quarter between 1981 and 1997. So we're talking about right the beginning of the internet, the beginning of screens. And so the beginning dropped, it, of the cognitive hypothesis. There you go. So, so that right there is the beginning. It dropped a quarter then. Well, it dropped five quarters since then. Right. And this change appears to be driven by increases in the amount of time children spend in structured activities. So that's that was just structured activities decreasing play. Now we have screens, the cognitive right. hypothesis, and germs. We are literally scheduling their lives away. Yeah, yeah. Overscheduled children, right? I think one thing I want to end on, even though it's 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 further back in the chapter, but on one and we've talked about this again, I know, multiple times, but I just find this fascinating. On page one eighteen, they talk about how in the state legislature in the state of New Jersey, they tried to pass um, a law requiring public schools to give children a bare minimum of twenty minutes of outdoor recess every day. The bill landed on the desk of the governor, Chris Christie. He vetoed the bill, calling it example of crazy government run amok. Okay. Um, part of my job as governor is to veto the stupid bills. That was a stupid bill and I vetoed it. Okay. He said, with all the other problems we have to deal with, my legislature is worried about recess for kids from kindergarten to fifth grade. Um, once he left office, the New Jersey legislature finally passed a bill requiring 20 minutes of recess per day for K through five when feasible. And it didn't start, it wasn't implemented until 2019. And you had brought this up in a previous episode, Mike, that um, the United Nations Standards of Human Rights um, says that prisoners, prisoners must have at least one hour of outdoor activity every day, one hour. And yet our schools, our, our elementary school students are only guaranteed 20 minutes if feasible. Unbelievable. It, it's, this is, <laughs> this is, this is an, an unbelievable broken system. And, yep. you know, in this country, we tend to only focus on things when they start to directly affect us. Uh, so right. if, if, it's, right. if it's not like if the pandemic's not affecting us, if guns aren't affecting sure. us, if taxes. And we just ignore it. Yeah. Gas yeah. prices, we ignore it. And now right. we're seeing this mental health crisis happening with students. And we're seeing right. students not behaving the way they should, not being energized, motivated all these issues. And now we're really starting to see it and it's becoming a, a, a real second pandemic, a, real, really a, a real issue. Uh, and really people is. are going to start to ask questions about what the cause. This book should be absolute mandatory yep. reading for yep. any educational, uh, anyone in charge of creating education, yep. any school leadership, curriculum, curriculum yeah. based, mm -hmm. anything. Mm -hmm. yep. This is what it is. So there is absolute no coincidence that right. there is a true correlation between the disappearance of play and the increase in, in mental, mental health, mental health right, problems. Right, right. And I promise this is the last thing because um, I, I know we, we've got we got to move on here. But on page 116, they talked about um, there's no convincing research showing that certain skills or bits of knowledge, such as counting to 100 or being able to read a certain number of words in kindergarten, um, will lead to later success in school. So it was referenced. So I went to the back and looked at the reference. And it's from someone named John Morrow. Um, and he has a book. And Mike, I think we might need to consider this uh, right. possibly. It's called Addicted to Reform, a 12-step program to rescue public education. Whoa. So I am pretty fascinated by this. I just looked it up right before we started recording, but um, I think I'm pretty interested because I'm always, you always hear that, that there's no evidence that says starting earlier, you know, leads to any um, long-term gains. So I think that's something we need to uh, start exploring a little bit more because we need the evidence that says, no, 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 children need to learn those skills um, through playful interactions, you know, with their teachers 
teachers and with their peers and everybody instead of sitting down doing pencil paper tasks, you yep. know, uh, without any movement in, involved in that. So yeah, I'm kind of interested in looking at this addicted to. Reform. I think that's our next book. I don't know. I think we'll have to look at it at least. And see what you think. So, anyways, thank you for joining us for another episode of Chapter Chat. Our next chapter five, Mike. Let's see. It is called. Oh well, okay. Why don't children play in school anymore? So mm. we are. Ooh, it's a big long chapter, Mike. So we're gonna they have to get are. reading. These are. Yeah, this is a this is a hefty book. So um, it looks. Yes, we have quite a chapter. So, anyways, we will uh, get started on that, and we will bring you all the highlights uh, for our next episode. So. Hope you're all doing well. Hope you're enjoying this review of the book. And Mike, uh, I will talk to you soon. That's right. See you next week. Take care.